Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcroft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to continue our exploration into this drama that is the book of Exodus. We have been at this now for a few months, and we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 13, and there's a number of things to discuss, so I am just going to jump right in. If you have your Bibles out, and if you can turn to Exodus chapter 13, and we will go ahead and read there verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So here, my friends, from the outset, what we are made to see is that God is calling upon Moses to set the firstborn aside for divine worship. So certainly there's this uh, priestly element that is tied to the firstborn. Now maybe we should say something about the word consecration as I'm speaking to it. Uh, The term consecration comes from uh, the Latin consecrare, okay, consecrare, which really translates as to make holy devote. This comes from the assimilated form of cum, meaning with, together, and sacrare, meaning to make or declare sacred. So in principle, my friends, consecration is the action taken to become more holy in devoted service to God, which in the Old Testament context is the priesthood again, right? But this evening, I think we should ask the question, What does this look like for us? Hmm? Certainly, we hear the word consecration a lot. What does this mean for us in our Christian faith? Well, this begins at baptism. By virtue of our baptism, we are consecrated in God, which means we are set apart for holiness. In the Old Testament, alongside of the firstborn, things like liturgical vessels were set apart, consecrated for a sacred purpose. In the New Testament, by the power of the Holy Spirit, man has been sanctified for holy ends or set apart for holy ends. St. Paul uses the word sanctified. The Greek there is hagiazo, which translates as a being set apart. So our baptism lies at the core of our being set apart. It is that which sets us apart. Pope Benedict XVI, in reflecting upon baptism, says this, This setting apart also includes, I love this, the essential dynamic of existing for. Precisely because it is entirely given over to God, this reality is now for the world, for men. It speaks for them and exists for their healing. So essentially, my friends, what Benedict wants us to see there, quite simply, is that our baptism, which sets us apart and calls us to mission, is what forms a single whole, right? Uh, In God for other. You don't separate 
one from the other. You can never be for other without first being in God. And if you're in God, you, you must exist for other. This is the very nature of God because God himself is love. If God is love, then God is always, entirely and forever about what but willing the good of other because this is what love is, willing the good of other. There is not an iota of self-interestedness in God, right? This is what consecration is all about. All right, that being said, let us continue. Exodus chapter 13, I will go ahead and read verses 3 to 10. And this is in regards to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. This day you are to go forth in the month of Abib. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, You shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And you shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. We also read something similar, my friends, in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 4 to 8, where Moses there says, These are the appointed festivals of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall celebrate at the appointed time for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, there shall be a Passover offering to the Lord. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not work at your occupation. For seven days you shall present the Lord's offering by fire. On the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall not work at your occupations. Okay, so... What can be gained from these texts? There's a lot there, and I I want to get inside of what is going on in the mind of the Hebrew here a little bit for you to help you understand what is going on. First, you have seven days of eating unleavened bread. What is this all about? Why unleavened bread? I've been asked this question quite a few times, and so let's talk about it. Well, leaven is yeast, right? And as we know, yeast is used to make bread do what? But rise. How does this happen? Well, you have these tiny microorganisms that would eat sugars and pass gas. The bubbles from the gas make the yeast rise. The thing of it is, my friends, this process takes time. So the Israelites in their exodus from Egypt did not have time to bake their bread with yeast. They had to make it unleavened. They had to make it without yeast, so unleavened bread. Hmm? Okay, second, you have special sacrifices, festival sacrifices they had to offer, such as holocausts, whole burnt offerings. Huh? Now, what's interesting is when you go, just not inside of the verses I read for you, but elsewhere in sacred scripture, 
you find hymns that were sung during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? All of these Old Testament feast days, there's seven of them, and I've talked about all seven before in the past. They're all liturgies, right? And so there's a whole lot of hymns in each liturgy. One of the hymns sung during the Feast of Unleavened Bread was Psalm 51, verses 15 to 17. Listen to these verses. Listen to this hymn. (laughs) O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou hast no delight in sacrifice. Were I to give a burnt offering, thou wouldst not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. These verses, my friends, very much speak to the interior reality of the Old Covenant, to the interior reality of how one was to enter into the mystery of this great feast day when they were to look back and remember the great Exodus event. What's more, it very much anticipates what is to be perfected in Christ, right? Again, Christ's love transforms suffering into something holy. And this is what is etched into the very fabric of Christian history on the cross. I mean, listen to that hymn again. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Could this not be Jesus on the cross? Huh? Remember the word sacrifice coming from the Latin sacrum fice means what? But to make holy. What takes place on the cross transforms our understanding of sacrifice. It's no longer something just external, some external offering offered up to God. No, now there is an interior reality to sacrifice. And this is what is revealed par excellence on the cross. Huh? So now Jesus on the cross transforms understanding of sacrifice. Jesus essentially gives us a new powerful dimension to better understand sacrifice that indeed all of our little sacrifices and maybe not so little sacrifices, big sacrifices have meaning that we can actually unite them with Christ and they have redemptive meaning, they have redemptive power. This is what St. Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, where he really challenges us as a church to unite our sufferings with Christ and that in that union of offering, they have redemptive value. Okay? All right. Third, speaking to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it began with the Sabbath and ended with the Sabbath. And there, of course, you have the significance of not only the number seven, but also the importance of rest. So maybe we should first speak to the number seven, because once again, it appears everywhere. Let us remember that the first time we see the word covenant, it is when Abraham is exchanging seven new lambs with Abimelech. They are entering into this compact agreement. They are making a covenant. And there, Abraham swears an oath. He binds himself as a witness to God that now he is in agreement with his brother, his brother in God. And what is a sign within that agreement but the seven ewe lambs? Why seven? Well, it's interesting. The Hebrew word for 
to swear an oath is shava. It literally translates as, yeah, to swear an oath, but also to seven oneself. So, you know, I think many of us have heard it said that the number seven is the number of perfection for the Jews, and many people say that and recognize that because, well, we see the number seven everywhere. But the question I ask you is, why is the number seven so great? Well, because it is caught up in the much larger picture of how you enter into a covenant with God. To seven oneself. So Abraham says to Abimelech there, uh, I give you seven ewe lambs as a sign of this compact agreement. Okay? And of course, this reflects the seven days of creation, right? And the significance of the seventh day, which brings us to the next point. God did what on the seventh day, but he hallowed it. He didn't rest because he needed a siesta, right? God didn't need to take a nap. <laughs> no, he hallowed the seventh day. He rested that we might better understand what it means to rest in the light of what he did on that seventh day, making it hallow, making it holy. You see, my friends, the significance of the seventh day is not just about taking a siesta, but about becoming more holy, entering into the dynamism of everything that that seventh day represents, which is worship. Even how we think about rest really should be caught up in the reality of worship. What do I mean? Well, (laughs) when is your soul at rest? Hmm? When do you find peace? I know a lot of people who do not worship on the seventh day, who rest thinking they are, they are fulfilling some sort of biblical obligation, and yet they cannot rest because they have not found their peace. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God gives us the seventh day that we might enter into not only this dynamic of worship, but in doing so, find our peace. Peace is one of the end goals of all of Christianity. It is all about being in covenant harmony with God. The Hebrew word for peace, shalom, literally translates as being in covenant harmony with God. Okay? So very important there. Fourth, with respect to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that it would be a memorial of redemption. So similar to how we talked about memory with Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread also calls forth this remembering. So more than just a commemoration of a historical event, but a covenant made with God where the historical event is extended into time, hmm? where God makes present the past. Recall, this is what is seen in the upper room when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. The word there for remember is, or remembrance is amnesis, which translates as a representation a making present the past. Every time the priest offers up the Eucharist and that Eucharist is transformed, suddenly the past is made present. All right, now there is an additional element to this great feast day and one that can be found in reading Second Chronicles chapter 30. There we read of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah keeping the Passover, but also keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread as it was dictated in the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. 
In point of fact, Hezekiah kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread with great gladness and joy. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread was about remembering the plagues, the trials, all their persecution in the years of slavery. But it was also a feast of gladness and joy because they were what? Set free. Huh? Oh, to be free from something that has enslaved us. I think on some level we have all experienced some type of enslavement. And hopefully on some level, we know this joy that comes to us when we have been set free, when we are no longer bound to a particular addiction or attachment, whatever that might be, power, prestige, pleasure. So all very important. Now, before we move forward in our reflections into the book of Exodus chapter 13, I thought it would be good to first ask the question, how is the great feast of the Eucharist a fulfillment to the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Right? I think that's an important question. Certainly we see this language in the New Testament, the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the New Testament. First, we should ask, when we receive the Eucharist, we are receiving what? But according to St. Paul, the bread of affliction. Well, whose affliction? Christ's. In the new Feast of Unleavened Bread, we are actually consuming Christ's suffering. And it is in this consuming that we are set free. So this bread of affliction is also the bread of redemption where we are saved and brought into God's light. And like in the days of Hezekiah, we should be singing with gladness and joy, huh? What's more here, to receive the unleavened bread of Christ is to have the essence of purity invade our souls. What does St. Paul say? If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Let me tell you, my friends, any time we are in the Old Testament and St. Paul is going to talk about it, we're going to take a look at St. Paul. So let us go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good, he says to the church of Corinth. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here, St. Paul draws from a spiritual lesson from the Feast of Unleavened Bread that the Corinthians need to rid their church of sin and flagrant sinners before the celebration of the liturgy. And certainly on an individual level, he's challenging the Corinthians to rid their hearts of lust and impurity, that they indeed may be a holy and acceptable offering to God and that they might see God for who he is. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. The Greek word for purity is kathados. Many of us want to translate that as just clean or, or modest or pure, and on one level that suffices. But you know me, you need to get underneath what the text says, right? Kathados literally translates as 
without mixture. Huh? Without mixture. The idea there in principle is to be one thing. To be one thing. To be single-minded. To be single-hearted. Don't get caught up in all of the side glances that the world wants you to. Huh? It's so easy to, to kind of look over to your left or look over to your right and to get distracted. Well, that's the function of the adversary. The word devil comes from the Greek diabolos, which literally means to scatter, right? Satan wants both our heart and mind to be scattered, looking to our left and and looking to our right, as opposed to being single-minded for God, which is to first be single-hearted for God. To have our hearts not mixed with other things. We cannot compartmentalize our life and and think that we're going to do God's will. Be one thing one moment and another thing the next moment. That will never last. There's no lasting power to that. The only thing that lasts and the only thing that will allow you to see God as he is, is to be single-hearted for him. What were we talking about in the opening? But to be consecrated to him, quite literally. I know we tend to overuse that word literally today, (laughs) but in reality, what we are made to understand is that the words we use and the things we talk about have intention, have meaning. And so, yeah, everything we do should have a literal meaning. And when it comes to what St. Paul is speaking to here and the message that comes to us in the Sermon on the Mount, yeah. When it concerns doing the will of God and seeing God, it first and foremost concerns a purity of heart. And this is what St. Paul is challenging the Corinthians to re-examine. You cannot receive the Lord, this new feast of unleavened bread, if you are impure, if you are full of anger and hate and holding this grudge, which is the size of a mountain in your heart. How can you possibly be in union with the God who is unity when we look upon other, well, not as us, but other? (laughs) All right, so very important. What else here in the book of Exodus? I know that was a lot to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but there's a lot there. How about the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire? Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead the way, lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people repent when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people round by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went out, up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had solemnly sworn the sons of Israel, saying, God will visit you, then you must carry my bones with you from here. So if you are with me in our study on the book of Genesis, we carefully, very carefully went through the whole narrative of Joseph. What is that? I think it's Genesis chapters 37 to 52. Really help us (laughs) better understand the role of Joseph, not only in salvation history, but even more specifically in the narrative that we read now. God will visit you, then you must carry my bones with you from here. The God of Moses is also the God of Joseph, huh? 
And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Oh, I love that. In a pillar, uh, Yahweh, God, marches out in front to lead and, and to light the way for Israel. The column of cloud and fire, taking the people to Sinai and beyond. Mm, beautiful. What is going on here? Well, here again, I think we ought to reflect, if ever so briefly, into the significance of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Yes, historically, as we just noted, these pillars were ever before the people of Israel, leading them to Mount Sinai and beyond. Well, what about that beyond? What about the New Testament? Does not the pillar of cloud and fire anticipate the gift of the Holy Spirit? Does not that pillar of cloud, which we know as the Shekinah cloud, the cloud of the presence of God, anticipate the Holy Spirit overshadowing like that of a cloud, Mother Mary? Huh? Where the Holy Spirit just doesn't hover above her but descends upon her, going inside of her, impregnating her with the Son of God. Beautiful. And this is what happens when we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the identity of God. We become impregnated with the love of God. And does not the pillar of fire anticipate another great event in salvation history, Pentecost, the birth of the church, what we Read in the opening chapters to the book of Acts, where fire descends upon the apostles in the form of tongues. Suddenly, they can interpret one another, interpret one another in their foreign tongue. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, my friends, allows us to understand one another, interpret one another, enlighten one another. What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, fortitude, counsel, fear of the Lord, piety. These, these great gifts that draw us deeper into the mystery of God, which really simultaneously is about the mystery of God abiding within us. That suddenly when we receive these gifts of the Holy Spirit, we now can love as we ought. So what is seen in the Old Testament? is allegorical to what is revealed in the New Testament. That indeed, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire represent, in the beyond, future events. The events of the Annunciation and certainly Pentecost, the birth of the church, which, oh, by the way, is a kind of reversal of fortune to what happened to Nimrod, right? What happened there? They were no longer able to interpret one another. Well, now, in the new gift of the Holy Spirit, no longer will one be called a Nimrod, but enlightened, enlightened in the truth and the love of God. Amen? Amen. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. We will pick up here where we left off next week. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.